Pakistan's geopolitical location seems to offer it vast economic opportunities. It's at the crossroads of Asia, with China, India, Iran and Afghanistan as neighbours. But as the region's long been troubled by political instability, the challenges are also formidable. And conflict are not just external. Domestically, instability has encouraged groups to seek violence as a political alternative. Rocketing inflation is hitting Pakistan's most vulnerable, Millions struggle to put food on the table and homelessness is widespread after many were forced from their homes by last year's floods. International cooperation seems critical if Pakistan is to successfully confront its crises. The country's top diplomat comes from a family with a long political history. The son of former Pakistani Prime Minister Benazir Bhutto, killed on the 27th of December 2007, became foreign minister, the youngest in the country's history, in April last year. We caught up with him during his most recent diplomatic mission in Baghdad. Bilal Bhutto Zadari talks to Al Jazeera. Uh, Pakistani Foreign Minister Bilal Bhutto Zadari, thank you for talking to Al Jazeera. You're joining us from Baghdad. Uh, what's the level of cooperation with Iraq right now? Uh, thank you for having me. Well, it is uh, my intent and my effort to enhance the bilateral cooperation between Iraq and Pakistan. Um, the last foreign minister to visit Iraq from Pakistan was my predecessor, but he was the first foreign minister of Pakistan to visit in 39 years. So uh, there's a lot of work for us to do uh, to enhance our cooperation and un unlock uh, the potential for economic cooperation, for all sorts of cooperation between our two countries. Now, let's get to brass tacks here. One of those, uh, the, the two key areas of cooperation are military, it's uh, you're um, actually selling uh, some super plane, super mushak planes to Iraq, a trainer aircraft, that'll give the military cooperation. But there's also religious tourism here as well. Ziarat, you're opening up an embassy in Najaf. This is, this is a quite a deep connection, much deeper than Pakistan has had with Iraq, uh, like you say, for about 39 years. Um, I think that you're, you're absolutely correct. We have uh, security and defense cooperation. There is scope for uh, more enhanced cooperation in both uh, security and defense. As you know, both Pakistan and Iraq have uh, faced the menace of uh, terrorism, and we've each learned lessons from that. So I think there's a lot uh, for us to cooperate and share. Uh, on that topic. You mentioned culture and religious ties. Absolutely. I'm working on enhancing our culture and religious ties, working on easing uh, visa for religious uh, tourism here in Iraq. And as you mentioned, I'm, uh, well, I'm doing a groundbreaking for our embassy here in Baghdad, and we will be uh, opening, opening a consulate in Najaf uh, soon as well. But we also have scope for economic cooperation between uh, it, Iraq and Pakistan. I hosted the first business forum between the Pakistani business community and the Iraqi business community. There's immense potential for investment on both sides. And the Iraqi government is also working on diversifying their economy. And they have a very, um, an initiative with a great deal of potential where they are constructing a development corridor. And I've spoken to my Iraqi counterparts and the prime minister of Iraq and requested them that Pakistan should also be included in this development corridor. So I believe there's a lot of scope 
for economic cooperation, security cooperation and cultural and religious uh, engagement. Let's talk about one of the biggest challenges that faces Pakistan, and that's climate change, particularly for you as a foreign minister as well. The Pakistan economy is still recovering um, from last year's devastating floods. Um, now, they did highlight the international community's responsibility toward helping Pakistan. There were a lot of promises made, uh, including the United Nations-led post-disaster needs assessment, which said that Pakistan needed $16.3 billion in uh, aid. Has any of that aid, have you got even close to any of that being delivered to Pakistan? So thank you very much. And I think you've touched on an extremely important issue, not just for Pakistan, but the world at large. A year ago, Pakistan suffered the most devastating climate catastrophe that we've ever seen in our country's history. With a third of our landmass underwater, one in seven Pakistanis affected, that's 33 million people. And obviously that has had an outside effect, uh, outsized effect on our economy. As far as our reconstruction uh, plans are concerned, we don't only want uh, to build back, but we want to build back better and a more climate climate-resilient fashion. And to that end, uh, Pakistan co-hosted with the UN Secretary-General a, cli a climate-resilient Pakistan conference in Geneva in order to raise the necessary funds. We had set our target at half of what was required uh, by the uh, damage needs assessment. So our target was about $8 billion uh, and we did super, we sort of overperformed. We touched between 9 and $10 billion as far as pledges are concerned. We are working to materialize those pledges while at the same time engaging with the IMF to finalize our IMF program. And of course, once our IMF program is in place, I imagine we'll receive even more uh, of uh, the resources from uh, those resources pledged by countries or multilateral institutions at our conference uh, for a climate-resilient Pakistan. But pledges need to become actual cash given to the country, and there is a lot of donor fatigue when it comes to Pakistan. Funds have been mismanaged in the past. I mean, you must be coming up against that in, as foreign minister. A lot of international community members so saying to you... Allow me to just correct you. you right there. Actually, no, I'm not. I'm not... The, the, there's quite a lot of misinformation about funds being mismanaged in the past. In fact, every single accusation uh, about funds mismanagement as far as disaster management is concerned, be it the 2005 earthquake, be it the 2010-11 floods, or now indeed these floods, while there has been frivolous accusations, no accusation has been proven truthful. And I think that's why, I mean, sort of the, the biggest proof that this accusation doesn't hold uh, any weight is the fact that Pakistan, despite the odds, despite the fact that the world is completely focused uh, on, on the, Uc the Ukraine-Russian conflict and most of uh, not only humanitarian uh, budgets but a lot of European and Western countries' budgets are going towards uh, that conflict despite all these challenges. Pakistan received support uh, from everywhere from the West all the way to the East, you're right, as far as pledges are concerned because this was a development conference. So while a, a couple of hundred million uh, were in the form of grants, the large chunk of the financing we've managed to arrange are either through bilateral uh, loans or through multilateral institutions, such as the World Bank, the Asian Development 
uh, bank and, uh, and such. So the, 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 the arrangements we've made with uh, international financial institutions, we've already started working on much of those, for example, in my home province in, in Sindh. But it will take time for us to materialize the full amount. Let's look to the region now um, and begin with Afghanistan. The Taliban has returned to power in Afghanistan in 2021. Pakistan's position was, let's see, let's give them a chance. Uh, Pakistan can't completely afford to disengage from Kabul. But has the Taliban failed uh, Pakistan's hope and expectations? Look, I think that it has been a, a slightly over a year since the fall of Kabul. And, of course, there were many, many... Uh, expectations uh, from the re new regime and, and uh, they're still, while they have delivered in some areas, there's a long way to go in many other areas. As far as Pakistan's position on Afghanistan, I think you'll find Pakistan's position is in line with the position of the international community. Uh, we, we also request that the interim government in Afghanistan fulfill their pledges to the international community and to their own people, be it uh, to do with um, women's rights or women's education or their commitment uh, for their soil not to be used uh, by a terrorist or to conduct terrorist activity in, 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 in other countries. But we still believe that engagement is the solution, and not only Pakistan, but the entire international community must engage with Afghanistan because it is in all our interests that Afghanistan becomes a, a secure, uh, prosperous country, uh, sort, of, um, sort of at one with itself and with its neighbors. And in order to do that, it requires not just Pakistan, but the entire international community to engage with Afghanistan. And then, of course, it, also, it is also incumbent on the interim government in Afghanistan that they live up to their commitments to the international community. But there's also domestic issues here as well. The Pakistani Taliban remain a threat. There was a very recent incident in northwestern Pakistan that left two soldiers and two militants dead. I mean, this must have an impact on the relationship with the Afghan Taliban. I can't, you're absolutely correct to point that out. And we, the biggest bone of contention we have is. Uh, the security threat that we face, particularly from the Tariqi Taliban Pakistan. Uh, we've seen a quantitative increase in the number of terrorist attacks in Pakistan following the fall of, of Kabul. And we are engaged with the Afghan authorities uh, with a, sort of a, a very strong uh, request for them to take serious action against such groups. I hosted the Afghan foreign minister in Pakistan. We also had a, a trilateral meeting uh, along with the Chinese, Chinese China, Pakistan uh, and Afghanistan. And the messaging out of our engagements there uh, did include uh, specifically action against terrorist groups. What does your relationship look like with Tehran at the moment? Are we, should we expect a visit like the one you've just made to Baghdad? Um, I've already been uh, to Tehran, uh, uh, in sort of, um, I think it's, a, it's been almost a year now since my maiden visit. And then recently, just last month, I accompanied the Prime Minister to inaugurate two projects at the border between Pakistan and Iran. One was a border market to encourage cross-border trade between 
Iran and Pakistan. Uh, we inaugurated a border market. Uh, and we also inaugurated a transition line where we're procuring electricity uh, from Iran uh, for Gwadar in, in, in Balochistan. So we're indeed engaged with Iran uh, just as much as we're engaged with uh, Iraq. Did the subject of Iran come up during your talks with your Iraqi counterparts? Iran clearly has a very good uh, relationship, but controversial, with Iraq. Um, I think that particularly recently, given the positive relationship, a positive development between the relationship of uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran and the, and the uh, engagement that was uh, coordinated with China and uh, Iraq played a large role in that, which has resulted in both countries re-establishing diplomatic relations and reopening their embassy. Uh, that is sort of, uh, that was very positive news, not only uh, for Iran and Saudi Arabia, uh, but, but our region and the world at large. And we're all um, optimistic uh, that uh, hopefully through engagement we will be able to resolve all issues and uh, we will see an increase of the peace dividend within the region. Now, let's talk about the region uh, slightly wider. China has always been a very key ally of Pakistan, but it has uh, been accused of um, almost loan shark tactics when it comes to developing infrastructure within Pakistan, that the money that China is giving to Pakistan is coming at quite a high cost. Is that an assessment that you would agree with, or do you think China is still a fair-weather partner? No, I, 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 I most certainly don't. Uh, agree with that assessment and I think that unfortunately uh, those with a bias attitude consistently repeat this claim without any proof. Uh, we, do, we have engaged uh, with China over the years. We have an all-weather strategic uh, partnership with China and we're, uh, we have uh, through the One Belt, One Road initiative and the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, Pakistan has developed its energy infrastructure, its communication infrastructure, its ports infrastructure. Uh, given the amount of work we have done, obviously uh, th that amount of development always comes uh, with a cost, uh, but we are optimistic that we will be able to live up to all our commitments and uh, development is the right of all countries not just a few countries uh, and uh, it is uh, the responsibility of the governments in Pakistan to uh, develop their infrastructure for, to, and to encourage economic prosperity for their people. As a result of the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, we are optimistic that there will be an increase in economic activity, not only in Pakistan, but also in China, and we can complement each other's economies. Now, Imran Khan um, was wanting closer relations with China. He wanted closer relations with Russia. That was seen as very controversial. It's one of the things that led to, to his downfall. Where is Russia's relationship with Pakistan right now? Do you have a relationship? So as far as Mr Khan is concerned, uh, I do not share your assessment uh, whether vis-a-vis uh, -vis his approach to China uh, or to Russia. Uh, but as far as this government is concerned, we are committed uh, to maintaining relations with all countries, engaging with all countries. Uh, and we've seen uh, an enhanced engagement uh, with the Russian Federation uh, since the new unity government uh, has come into power. And we want uh, to de develop deep, meaningful relations with uh, economic ties need to be enhanced, a whole host of 
of ties need to be enhanced uh, with Russia. Uh, but at the same time, we maintain our neutrality and don't want to get drawn into uh, the conflict between Russia and uh, Ukraine. As far as China is concerned, uh, I uh, already sort of uh, touched on that briefly. We have, uh, we have always and we will seek to continue to enhance our cooperation uh, with China. If Imran Khan, while in power, also uh, worked uh, with the Chinese government, that is a continuation and not an anomaly as far as Pakistan's foreign policy is concerned. The only person to blame for Mr. Khan's downfall uh, is himself, and I'm sure that uh, history will prove that to be the case. But among the supporters of Imran Khan, uh, they squarely believe that the army was the one that brought him down. Amongst the supporters of Imran Khan, support for the army is at an all-time low. Many commentators in Pakistan are suggesting that whilst it has been uh, acknowledged by retired army officers that there is a lack of support now for the army, as an institution, the army is still very strong. Do you agree with that? Do you agree that the army is unpopular in Pakistan? I really appreciate that you've given me the opportunity actually to address this question because while Mr. Khan's uh, supporters might hold this view, it is not based in reality or fact. As far as the role of uh, the army in Pakistan's politics, well, of course, no one can hide the fact that we have been uh, sort of more than half of our history been governed by uh, military rule. Uh, and I stand before you today, my party, the Pakistan People's Party, has challenged each and every single dictatorship in Pakistan's history. Uh, from Mr. The, the last dictatorship we had was Mr. Musharraf's dictatorship, and Mr. Khan's uh, political history is this, that he has supported every di dictator and he supported every autocrat in Pakistan's history. Even Mr. Khan's rise to power in 2018, it's a well-documented fact, a proven and established fact, uh, that he was brought uh, into power through a rigged election in collaboration with some former officers of the Pakistan uh, army. Mr. Khan's problem with the Pakistan's army beca began in April of last, last year when they declared that they would not be involved uh, in politics and they would not uh, take size. Mr. Mr. Khan's issue with the army in Pakistan is not that they're not involved in politics. His problem with the Pakistani army is they're not getting involved uh, to support him. As far as the army's popularity as an institution is concerned, uh, it may, it, the PTI supporters may be uh, upset with the Pakistan army for not violating the constitution and supporting Mr. Khan, but the majority of Pakistani of Pakistani citizens want the Pakistan army to remain apolitical and not intervene uh, in the politics uh, of the country. And a majority of the people of Pakistan are deeply offended by the actions that took place on May 9th, where Mr. Khan encouraged his supporters to attack army installations in Pakistan, the core commander house in Lahore, the general headquarters in Rawalpindi, Rawalpindi and many military installations. Such an attack has never taken place by any political party in the history of Pakistan. And now uh, those who were involved in these attacks on our military installations must face uh, the consequences of the law of the land. But you must agree, and you've almost said it yourself, the Pakistani army does have an outsized influence in Pakistan. That cannot continue the way it is, surely. You've got... A change has to come. 
but I, absolutely, but we are the ones who have not from today, but for generations been struggling for that change. We don't believe that that change comes overnight. And we don't believe that change can come by attacking military institutions in the country. The only way that change can come would be for democratic forces and civilian institutions, such as parliament, to take their place within Pakistani society and exert themselves. Of course, while Mr. Khan was prime minister, he paid very little attention to parliament. And when he should have been leader of opposition, he left parliament. The fate of Pakistan can't be decided on the streets of Pakistan. It has to be decided by parliament. And that is the only way that Pakistani democracy can be strengthened. When civilians take their own space, we'll ease the army out of politics. Now, you've been in the job for just over 14 months as foreign minister. Uh, indeed, you're the youngest foreign minister in the country's history, but you've been in the rough and tumble of Pakistani politics since your mother, Benazir Bhutto, was assassinated in 2007. How would you sum up your experience? Um, I would sum up my experience as that of uh, uh, Pakistan's experience over this time, that it's been complicated. As far as our uh, development as a democracy, it has very much been two steps forward, one step back, one step forward, two steps back. Uh, we saw a lot of progress uh, on that front between 2008 uh, to 2013, and we've seen the health of our democracy deteriorate post-2008. Now there's a lot of work that needs to be done to strengthen our democracy. We've seen that the political stability that was a dividend of that democracy, was a dividend of the Charter of Democracy, that was signed by uh, my mother lasted for 10 years and that political stability from 2008 till 2018 uh, resulted in economic development and economic stability and as soon as we saw political stability we've seen challenges for our economy so I believe that Pakistan has many challenges uh, sort of a perfect storm we've got the climate crisis that you mentioned we've got the fall of Kabul we've got the implications of the Ukraine uh, Russian uh, conflict and we will have our own domestic uh, issues, but all of these challenges can be overcome. Uh, these are difficult challenges, but they are temporary challenges, and I am confident that the people of Pakistan will come together uh, to rise to meet these challenges and build a better future for ourselves. Now, on her return to Pakistan, I did ask your mother, Benazir Bhutto, uh, why she would return. I said, it often ends badly for your family. Uh, why risk your life? Why return? Let me ask you the same question in a slightly different way. Your grandfather was executed, your mother assassinated, your uncle was killed. Do you regret returning to Pakistan? Almost oh, certainly I don't regret returning to Pakistan. I, uh, sort of the thing that drives me every day uh, is the desire to fulfill uh, my mother's vision uh, for our country. And in my 14 months as foreign minister, I've seen the potential uh, that we have and we only need an opportunity to unlock, unlock that potential. And then the sky's the limit for Pakistan. Uh, we are a country uh, that has been ravaged by the consequences uh, of the Afghan war and our own uh, internal decisions. But I have full faith in our country and in our system. As far as my, um, my, family, my family's history, you're absolutely right. It's one that's uh, almost out of a, uh, a Greek uh, tragedy, but actually I'm here in Baghdad and I'm going, I'm on my way today, I'm going to be going to Karbala. And I, uh, and I often uh, think that if the Prophet's family 
uh, suffered such such difficulties in their lifetime, and our 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 sacrifices or our difficulties are nothing in comparison. Uh, and with uh, with struggling, and only through struggling, and only through facing uh, the odds, do you uh, do you get. Uh, to receive the fruits of your labor, and I'm sure one of the fruits of our sacrifice, one of the fruits of this labor, will be a more democratic, peaceful, prosperous, and ultimately progressive Pakistan. Sounds remarkably like your mother's words, democracy is the best revenge. Is democracy actually in Pakistan, though? I think that Pakistan is transitioning uh, towards, well, it has a potential to transition towards democracy. We are standing at the fork in the road. And I think that the, the populist post-fact politics that Mr. Khan has introduced to Pakistani uh, society is really shaking our young democracy to its foundations. We've seen how a 200-year-old democracy like the United States has been shaken by populism over there. Uh, and this has, it, this has been a, a fundamental challenge to us. All the norms, in, in democratic norms that we had established post-2008 in order to become a semi-functioning democracy are now being challenged, are now being challenged, but it is now up to us uh, to ensure that we implement the constitution, the law, and do whatever we can to combat these challenges so that it is the interest in strengthening democracy rather than undermining it. But I would absolutely admit we are that that fork roads, and now it depends on the decisions that the pe people of Pakistan take. Pakistani Foreign Minister Bilawal Bhutto Zadari, thank you for talking to Al Jazeera. Thank you, thank you for having me.